I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. Today I've got an awesome guest. He's a good friend and mentor. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and earned his first degree black belt in Taekwondo while serving alongside Korean Marines in Vietnam in 1968. He also holds a master's rank in combat cane spinning in the American cane self-defense system. And he is an intelligence historian, a best-selling author, and the founding board member of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being on the show, Keith Melton. A pleasure to be with you as always, my friend. Yeah, buddy. So uh, let's dig into this. You know, we, uh, you know, unbeknownst to the listeners, we've had a practice run with this and we had some technical glitches and now we, uh, we get to do it nice and clean this time around. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Right. Um, I can tell. yes. So we, uh, I think, uh, let's dial back. You, uh, the, the highlights for me, I mean, you've got a lot of highlights in your life. You've, you've lived, you know, three or four average person's lives already. And you're still one of the most productive, energized people I know, um, you know, just getting shit done on a regular basis, which is always just awesome to see. Um, I think you got more energy than I do half the time. So good on you. Um, so let's start with, uh, Naval Academy and then heading out the door to Vietnam. What was that like? Interesting time in history. Uh, young, idealistic, uh, appreciate the country, what we stand for. The Naval Academy was a great place to emphasize that, and uh, I volunteered for Vietnam. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to go over. Yeah, and uh, and then, what was it like coming back? I mean, you see a lot of movies, you know, everything from Forrest Gump to a couple of others that uh, kind of highlight that the that uh, America wasn't uh, digging you so much. Um, what was your experience with that? I lived in the South in Louisiana at the time, so. It was more tolerable. Southern folks always seem a bit more patriotic, so it wasn't as extensive. If you traveled up north, it was always disconcerting to see someone disrespect the flag or speak as they did of the the brave people that served the country. And I'm still offended when I see that today. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's amazing, you know. I. I hate to say it, but sometimes I feel like there's just too much freedom, right? <laughs> to be able to, you know, knock a soldier or, you know, anybody who serves overseas and puts themselves in uh, harm's way for the greater good. And then they come back and, you know, people are burning flags or, you know, talking shit about, you know, service members. It's just, uh, it blows my mind. And it, uh, that's why I say sometimes I feel like there's a little too much freedom, right? Well, I think we're, we're kind of testing that these days and free speech has to be prized. Uh, to be patriotic means you appreciate the country and our values. So I, yeah. I'm sorry to see it being um, interpreted differently. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, the timing of 
us recording this right now, we have uh, Afghanistan shutting down. We have most of the troops gone. We have about, what, 3,000, I think I heard, uh, Americans still there, uh, mostly supporting the embassy, and they're all uh, leaving. And so you see a lot of memes in social media comparing, you know, the uh, fall of uh, Kabul uh, to Saigon after we pulled out of there. What are your thoughts on that? Both cases show us that military, U.S. military strategic planning and might works when we're involved. But if the country we're trying to rescue, save, support, doesn't have the internal will to want liberty or want to fight for their own country, then we are not in a place to do it for them. And certainly the debacle in Kabul shows that giving a country a formidable military, if they lack leadership, they lack willpower, and they're corrupt, it's not going to have a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I've been in and out of there, you know, during my career and, uh, you know, my experience as limited as it was compared to conventional forces, you know, there, there were some that wanted to work hard, you know, and, uh, do the job. Um, but for the most part, you know, and I kind of generalize this, uh, working with different, uh, militaries in the middle East. Um, there's a lot of, you know, of that, uh, inshallah, you know, mindset, you know, God's will. Uh, if God wants me to show up on time, I will. But uh, if he doesn't, then I won't, <laughs> you know, and that that is the storyline for uh, training forces in the Middle East. Like sometimes they'd be like, yeah, we're gonna have 22 guys show up today and one would show up. <laughs> and, that, and that was it for the entire day. Uh, but it was always hit and miss and uh, never any consistency with uh, their level of commitment. So, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, you, and then you, you're sitting there going, what are we doing? Why am I wasting my time? Right. And I think that's where a lot of veterans are. There's some of them that are like, yeah, it's time to get out of there and uh, move on. And then there's others that are like, wait a minute, we put all this effort in. I lost buddies. Um, you know, we shouldn't leave. So I don't think anyone's right or wrong. Um, but I certainly would love to have the $1 trillion or just under $1 trillion we've invested over there uh, to come back here to America. That's for damn sure. I wouldn't mind uh, getting a little piece of that pie, right? Well, we can. I, it's been a number of comparisons. And I was in Saigon a few times. Uh, and I, everyone remembers the scene of the final helicopter, the Air America, Air American helicopter pulling out of Saigon. Yeah. They, they falsely state it was at the embassy. And actually, it was at the deputy chief of station of CIA. It was his residence that was lifting off from. But as I'm sure you've read, there was a very well conducted and orchestrated plan for that. Yeah. At least what I've seen in the last 24 to 36 hours on television looks like a debacle that people were not planned. And there's just utter chaos as I read the newspaper accounts that we're negotiating with the Taliban to see how we can now get our people out. Yeah. I, I hope there's more work going on constructively behind the scenes than it sounds on television. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I know from my experience, uh, sitting overseas and usually it's Fox news that's on over on bases. And, uh, 
whatever they're reporting is about 85% incorrect compared to what was going on in the very country I'm standing in. <laughs> they would tell me, there's protests in the streets. People are dying. And I'm like, I just went and got a haircut today. I didn't see a damn thing going on. <laughs> you know, so yeah, take the, take the media at a grain of salt. That's for damn sure. Um, okay, moving out of that political drama. Uh, I usually don't touch on it, but I figure it's worth talking about it since uh, the whole Saigon piece and you're in Vietnam and and uh, coming across Vietnam vets is becoming more rare and rare each day. So thanks for your service over there, Keith. Um, most welcome. Thank you for yours. Yeah. Uh, so you came back and you uh, started working in the family beverage company. Is that correct? The, the family is the uh, largest wine and liquor retailers in uh, in Louisiana, one of the largest in the South. Oh, okay. And uh, you kind of, you, 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 that was kind of your, okay, now you're a civilian. You went and worked for the family, with, with the family, and you kind of decided this isn't my thing, right? Family businesses are wonderful. I learned a great deal, but there's a time you need to go on and do it yourself. And there you uh, go. I looked for that opportunity. Yeah, you did. And, uh, so the story goes, and you told me this on a, I don't know, a long time ago, and I think you, yeah, I may get this right or wrong, but uh, I'd asked you, Keith, when did you make your first million bucks? And you're like, I was 27 years old. And then I had to give it back to my family when I told them I didn't want to work with them anymore. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and let's get this right. What is a million bucks at age 27-ish or whatever the age was? And this is what year? Well, I left the uh, family business in 1978. So in 78, a million bucks at that age is equivalent to what these days? I, I guess it depends on if you had it in the market or just inflation. <laughs> so uh, it was a lot more than it is today. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But it's a lot of money if you were to convert it to today, right? I mean, holy crap. Um, so... You ended up giving some, giving most of it back, and then you took what was left and you went and invested it into a McDonald's franchise, right? It's correct. Yeah. So, how much was a franchise back then? Well, the the, the key to a McDonald's, one of the things that makes it unique is it's not just merely a matter of money. A franchise was then, and I believe now, is still around forty thousand dollars. But that was never the issue. The issue was getting yourself in the position that you could do it. Your total investment, I think in those days was about a million dollars in a site. And it's gone up to several times that now. Yeah. But the key was to be in a place that you could do it. it was McDonald's is very clever. They didn't get to be the largest food service retailer in the world by accident. So they know if you have too much money, you won't work hard and they don't want you. If you don't have enough money, they don't want you because you can't afford it. So there's this kind of a narrow area that they want someone that's all in. You'll do everything to, to be successful. And, uh, and when it's, but it's any business, if it's well run, you can make money. If it's not well run, you're probably going to lose money. Yeah. And that's yeah. always the conundrum. Right. And that goes for any business, um, whether it's a big name or you're starting your own little shop, right? I mean, what you put in is what you get out. I kind of, I tell my daughter that all the time, whether it's grades or work or workouts, it's all the same. Whatever you put in is what you get out of it, right? Correct. Doesn't change. Doesn't change. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. 
Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. More with former McDonald's chairman of the board, Keith Melton, after this message. Okay, so well, you got you, you bought your first one, and then then you bought when did you buy your second one? Well, a little little difference. I I heard of an operator in Utah mm-hmm. that was on bad terms with McDonald's. Yep. I had first called up McDonald's and said I'm interested in being a franchisee. They said that the roles were full, but called them five years later. They may have an opportunity. I didn't want to wait five years because you and I are special. And uh, so I heard of an operator in Utah that was almost to the point of litigation with McDonald's. So I grabbed an accountant, flew out there. And on a Saturday afternoon, I made a deal to buy his two restaurants without McDonald's permission. And then on a Monday morning, I called him up at the local, their regional office and said, introduce myself. I just bought two of your restaurants. They said, well, you can't do that. So I flew over, met with them that same day. And they said, not only can't you do that, but we won't even talk to you because you've never spent time in a restaurant. I said, well, how much time do I need to spend? They said, we don't talk with anyone that hadn't spent 100 hours. So I said, it's not a problem. This was in Denver. I said, I'll be back a week from today. They said, you can't spend 100 hours working in a week. Mm-hmm. I said, why not? They said, you got to take at least two weeks. Flew back. And I presented them the case that that I met all of their qualifications, or if not, interfering with a sale would be restraint of trade. Hmm. So they said, well, secretly, well, we'll take care of him. He said, he's been 100 hours. We'll send him to our first training courses, and he'll quickly flunk out. And so a week later, I went to the kind of basic operations course, and then they tried to sucker punch me, and then a week later sent me to the two-week Hamburg University. Hamburger and University. I've heard about that up there in Chicago, right? They are. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting business school. Very intense, two weeks. Uh, I ended up the number one graduate in class. So at that point, I knew legally I had good standing. And I went out to, about a month later, and I took over two McDonald's. And uh, I turned them around, did very well with them. Three years later, I sold them. Because I had the idea, I'm willing to sell what I have anytime, do a like kind of exchange to avoid paying taxes at that point, and then just trade the assets into a bigger market with more problems. And I guess I did that four different times in my career. So I was always looking for stores with potential and maybe markets that weren't as desirable to live, such as Wichita, Kansas, or Shreveport, Louisiana. But ultimately, they were good for me. And I finally ended up in West Palm beach, uh, some, I don't know, 20 something years later. So to simplify what you're saying, I interpret that as you kind of were flipping McDonald's. You're going into the ones that weren't doing so well, take yes. it over, make yes. it productive and then sell it. But you get to, when you increase the profit, when you sell, you sell as a multiple of the profit. So if you make, $7 more in net profit in a year, you create an asset that has $7 in back. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
But McDonald's is very clever about it. You can't own restaurants anywhere in the country. You must live in and operate the restaurants you own. So I was happy to move to any market as long as there were potential. And I did that, uh, I guess, through four moves. And it, it worked oh. out very nice. So you ended up owning, what was it? What's your number? 36? The highest number I had was 32 or 33 McDonald's. Wow. That's pretty cool. And then uh, the best part, I think, of of the story um, is you be, you basically worked your way up to being chairman of the board um, in a very what, relatively quick amount of time, right? I had been in the system, uh, I guess, about 20 20 years, and I became chairman of the operators board, mm -hmm. which was the uh, McDonald's has a very interesting relationship with its franchisees. Uh, sometimes they're all pulling for the same uh, same side and other sides. You got to remember, it's a corporation that's just there to make money. It's McDonald's does a very good job of making money. <laughs> and uh, most of the time, the operators interests are aligned. But at times there aren't. And, you know, you need to be willing as if you're the chairman, you need to stand up and try to find a way that you can move forward together. And sometimes yeah. that's challenging. I bet. I bet there's a balancing act there. Um, okay. Now you, you work your way up and during your time, you know, it was one of the most popular uh, McDonald's lawsuits, right? It was the, a woman pulls into the drive-thru, buys a hot coffee, puts it between her legs, somehow spills it, burns her vagina and then sues you guys and end up walking away with millions. So uh, what's the background on that? Well, I, I knew the operator who owned the restaurant. It was in New Mexico. And kind of the backstory is that uh, there's always a little more. Yeah. She was uh, in her 40s, a hot chick for southern Mex New Mexico, uh, driving a little sports car and had a younger boyfriend with her. And so she hiked up her miniskirt to put the hot coffee. And in those days, coffee was coming out at almost 200 degrees at our coffee machines. Yeah. And when she speed shifted, she squeezed her legs together as she synchronized the clutch and that she burned herself. And uh, apparently she went home, uh, was in some discomfort, but still had friends there. And she entertained socially for the next couple of days. Had some boyfriend, I've had a boyfriend come in. But then on the third day, went to the hospital to express some discomfort. Mm. And ultimately, that led to a lawsuit. Uh, the insurance company decided the best way to pursue it was to bring in a New York firm to represent her in this little town in New Mexico. And Yankee lawyers don't necessarily do well in rural New Mexico. And ultimately... <laughs> uh, the ruling was against her, but I, I was against McDonald's. But later, I, on review, I don't believe it held. But the interesting thing to me was in the next year, there were more than 600 copycat lawsuits. Oh, man. Yeah, of course. So uh, the, the worst I ever had was someone sued me claiming they slipped on a pickle in the parking lot. <laughs> and they were directly proportional to the economy. As the yeah. economy got worse, the lawsuits went up. Oh, yeah, I could see that correlating for sure. Huh. Well, and and I'm I'm guessing the boyfriend, you know, they probably schemed this idea, right? I mean, they had to have been like, hey, 
And before I take you to the ER, I'm going to go ahead and pound you real good. Right? Uh, you know, who knows what <laughs> went on behind closed doors? <laughs> yeah. Let's get that thing all fired up so the doctors look at it and write it up as is. Right? <laughs> all right. So, uh, McDonald's. Yeah. That's what I, that's, that's the best part. I wanted to get to the uh, burnt vagina story. I know everybody probably wants to hear all about it. They probably haven't even, heck, I don't know my listeners. I don't know if they're old enough to even remember when that was in the news for a while, but it was definitely interesting. Um, all right. So while you're, you know, doing your McDonald's career, uh, and maybe even before you've had a, you've had an interest in intelligence and espionage and, You've written a number of books on it, and you've become quite the subject matter expert. Uh, when did all that start? What was kind of the trigger that got you, you know, so addicted to uh, that world and purchasing artifacts in that world? I had an interest. Clint Pong was in Vietnam. I did some very, very minor things over there that, that hopefully were a little helpful. Uh, but I need to make a decision when I left. Did I go in government service or go into business? And I really made a decision to go into business. It probably was the best for everyone, but I certainly had and still have great respect for those people that, that work for the government at often at times at much lower salaries than they could make on the outside. And mm-hmm. in the eighties, I'm an engineer by train and I, I have a fascination with how things work and somewhat of a talent for explaining complex situations to help folks that perhaps aren't technically minded, how technology has been used. And especially in the, in the clandestine world, because many books at the time told you what clandestine officers did, but very few people told you how they did it and what they did. And that was always my fascination. Yeah. So I, I bought every book in the English language that discussed espionage and had photos. And the first thing I did was catalog every photo in a book with a picture of spy gear. Mm. And then I empirically started to say, well, what are the similarities and the dissimilarities and develop different categories of equipment. And then I had the theory that form is determined by function. So if your goal is to read a microdot, a, a reduction of a page of text on a small a one millimeter size piece of celluloid or film, then pretty much everybody's going to, a good engineer will come up with the same solution regardless of where they are. So if you, if you learn to see one East German microdot reader, well, probably the KGB version is going to be very similar and the CIA version is going to come up with almost the same answer and begin to write books and begin to travel around the world looking for interesting gadgets for the collection. And, uh, I've enjoyed it. And anyone that visits the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. today, they can see in a beautiful facility uh, the collection and supported by some wonderful pieces of yours as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, that building turned out great. And uh, yeah, if you're in the D.C. area or visiting the D.C. area, you should certainly figure go go visit the International Spy Museum. Um yeah, it's a beautiful building. And then, of course, the way the artifacts are displayed, uh, you, you get a sense of, you know, you feel like a spy walking through there. Just, uh, just the experience in itself. They did a, they did a, you guys did a great job on that thing. 
More with tradecraft expert Keith Melton after this. So yeah, you became quite the expert. Now, correct me, you got a photographic memory. I mean, that's you're and you're you've got like this vault brain that I could never get. There's no way I'm dumb, right? I mean, but you everything you see, you pretty much it stored up there and stays there like a hard drive, right? Well, never as much as I'd like, but in in many areas, <laughs> I have very good recall. Yeah, yeah, um, and because of that, you're able to really just really off the cuff, come up with like the details of different, uh, you know, historical events, um, very quickly and, or do comparisons in your own mind of things that have happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future and how we really don't pay attention to our history, but you're one of those guys that does. And, um, and all of that's come in handy with, uh, some TV shows that are, uh, where you're a technical advisor to a certain degree, right? Well, it has been. We've uh, in the '90s started. I did a series for A and E called Spies. I think 26 episodes. And in the then in the late '90s, I approached the CIA and said, "I'd love to do some in-house series. We'd like to go inside the CIA." Yeah. And uh, they agreed, and that was highly successful on uh, Discovery Channel. I worked with uh, our mutual friend Craig Collegian who is now, uh, who founded Pilgrim Films and Television, is now part of Lionsgate. And uh, you know, we're all still working together on interesting projects when they come up now. Yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, the show that I just started to check out, I'm kind of late, uh, is The Americans, right? And you, uh, you helped them out as well, right? I did. Uh, the author, there were two, Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. And Joe had been in CIA for a couple of years, and he called me around 2010. Uh, Bob Wallace and I had written a book called Spycraft, which is considered probably the definitive story of how the Office of Technical Service, the gadget makers of CIA, how they contributed to winning the Cold And Joe wanted to write a series for television about this, but he wanted to set it in the mid eighties. I told him he's welcome to use, use the, the book. And uh, if he sold it, then give me a call. And I'm sure you received those same calls in about uh, one of 30 or 40 you hear back from later and Joe sold it. And it became the Americans, which uh, won about every award it could. And so mm-hmm. for all of the seasons, uh, I was a technical advisor. And my role was to read the script, tell them how they could accomplish what they wanted and still be, be in touch with reality. Yeah. Uh, and, but what made it special was when they showed the gadgets, I provided the real gadgets. So when we show <laughs> KGB cameras, we show a KGB assassination device, it's real. And if they used FBI equipment, it's real equipment contemporaneous to that 84 to 86 time period. And when you then have good tradecraft, I like to believe it laid a foundation that was one of the reasons that the show was just incredibly successful. Yeah. Now, I when I'm watching, I'm like, wow, this is super accurate. And of course, because if you're involved in other experts, it's it's done really, really well. And I was like, man, why haven't I watched this already? It's been around for years. But uh, yeah, I 
Now, as soon as I watched the uh, the first episode, it was like any other show. I was already addicted, and uh, yeah, and I can't remember. I think I've made it through. I don't know how many seasons there are, but I, I'm pretty much through most of them so far. I think I have a, another one, but I'm juggling. You know, I'm juggling that with Homeland and uh, a couple others that are kind of the same. You know, genre or so. They're all good. Um, all right, so. Now, artifacts. You got artifacts in the spy museum, and then very few people have had the opportunity to go to CIA headquarters. And they have, you know, I know that um, every time I went, I would visit their two internal little museums that are, at the time, it was split up. They had one dedicated to uh, female, you know, case officers and spies and the history of it. And then they had one that was more general, kind of like the spy museum, right? It has all kinds of knickknacks well, and stuff. Now, your it, stuff in there as well? Well, it started out as the original museum. It became the two components, the OSS, which yeah, looked right. at the foundation OSS. of CIA. And then the second one was it started in 1997 when the agency was celebrating its 50th anniversary. Oh, and so okay. the challenge was someone had the idea we should show some of the, the great pieces of equipment that the CIA developed over the years. But there was so much conflict, no one could agree on what to declassify. So, so they reached out to me I'm not and surprised. said, everything you have, clearly, if you have it, it must be declassified. Yeah. So would you work with us and develop a display? And we did. It was uh, quite extensive. It was in corridor D. And yeah. uh, in the fall of 97, uh, welcomed uh, President Clinton and President Bush, uh, B-41, there for the, uh, the, the celebrate the 50 years. And it was so successful that it, it became an answer to one of the agency's problems. It's when you have visitors, when they had official cleared visitors, what could they do? Because where you can't just go in an office and see what's <laughs> yeah. happening. So it became right. a destination. And it was so successful, they have they do a wonderful job of it. And they have a great history and uh, museum staff. And it's expanded significantly. But I still have several hundred objects there on display. Oh, okay. Yeah, I knew that most of it was yours. And, uh, you know, by the time you fast forward to when I'm walking those hallways, you know, it's... Uh, there's the Starbucks and an awesome gift shop, you know, and, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but right there near the museum. So it's, uh, it's almost like going to the mall now. <laughs> well, the EAA store, the employee store is still the most popular destination to get logoed t-shirts and CA material. So, uh, right. it's, uh, it's, 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 it's never ceased to be popular. No, not at all. I think I even bought some like top secret CIA hot sauce or something they were selling there. And it's like, man, they got top secret and CIA logos on everything from coasters to hot sauce, to t-shirts, to you name it. I created it. that. <laughs> That's your shop, right? I created the hot sauce. Yeah. Oh, the hot sauce. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did. It had a, uh, it had an interesting, it had the agency crest and it had a little admonition on it. Do not remove from cafeteria. That's what it was. Yes. That was clever. Yeah. There was a couple of things like that. Yeah. yeah, I figured, okay, that makes sense. You're behind it. Because I knew the CIA wasn't creative enough to come up with that. It had to be you. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, another interesting thing, you know, my experience, and I think uh, listeners would find interesting about the CIA, 
is, uh, you know, there's different nicknames that especially us special operators have given them. One is the clowns in action, right? Um, because there was a time when you were like, man, these guys are supposed to be like high speed and you never really got that sense. If they've come a long ways though, I will tell you that. Um, and then the other one that I find even more interesting is, uh, Christians in action. And, uh, and that one proved to be true in many cases where, uh, I was on a deployment and I was working with two case officers and they both happened to be Mormon. And so we got into this discussion of the whole, like, okay, what's this nickname Christians in action that, you know, I'd heard over the years and it was mostly tongue in cheek, but they were like, no, I mean, think about it, man. I mean, these are Mormons telling me like we, I grew up traveling the world, flipping people, you know, from whatever religion they were doing, if they did, or they didn't have a religion and I'm flipping them that to believe in God. And I'm like, that's genius, right? Because they've already got all this experience building rapport, and then trying to get people to convert. So what's your experience with that? Well, and one other thing, they had great language skills. And yes, the language missions, skills all the missionary, yeah. So, so, and plus a couple other things. They, they more than likely didn't use drugs, and they probably could pass a polygraph. So when you <laughs> yes. factor all those things in, BYU is, is a hot spot for recruiting. And, and you could likely imagine that there's a, a political science professor there that probably is a talent spotter. And yeah. when he sees people he thinks are, are, could contribute, someone makes a phone call and they're later invited to come in for an interview. Uh, yeah. so I think that but both the FBI did the same thing. Language skills are so important. Right. Um, and the ability, a, a case officer, a CIA case officer could probably literally sell ice to Eskimos. And if you think about it, if you if you can convince a person to kind of either betray their own country or find reasons why joining allegiances with us is more important, then you could probably sell about anything to anybody. Yeah. And, uh, but to do it and still keep someone's respect, but keep them motivated, supported, and try to continue to uh, succeed in the mission, it requires a lot of skill and planning and the ability to deal with adversity along the way. I think we see that. Yeah, no, and I saw it with these guys. I mean, they were probably, you know, the better of the case officers I'd ever worked with, um, mainly because of that background, growing up overseas, doing missions overseas, understanding culture, like they knew all the details because they grew up in it, you know, and then of course, language. And if you got language and you understand the culture, then you're already at the 50% mark on gaining respect and building, you know, trust. Uh, the next 50% is all the gift of gab and how you articulate yourself and convince them that, uh, working for the United States is the right thing to do. <laughs> so yeah, yep. pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Wow. Good stuff, man. Well, okay. So last piece now you are, you've, you've, uh, you know, Naval Academy grad that went to Vietnam, came home, worked in the beverage industry, then switched to McDonald's, worked your way up to, uh, chairman of the board. And then, uh, you know, in, in, Paralleling all that, you've become this espionage expert, um, advised in Hollywood on TV shows, created a bunch of shows. The one of the shows that I, you know, I'm all, I, I loved watching when it was out was OC Choppers. Um, I know that you played a role in that. And uh, 
the Tullys, right? That was their, it was the Tullys, yeah, the are. dad and the, and the son always yelling at each other while they're building motorcycles. A very special uh, father-son relationship there. <laughs> yeah. How much of that was like real or just, hey, the cameras are running? It was more extreme off camera than it was on camera. Whoa. Okay. Wow. That makes it even more interesting, huh? Well, if they were functional, it wouldn't be good television. Right. <laughs> People watch reality TV to see situations that are worse than whatever they're experiencing. If they're yeah. normal, no one wants to watch it. So the key was to, to find situations that were interesting, but somehow manageable. And uh, I think that was a, was a problem to ultimately manage that after 10 years. But right. I think they're coming back now. Uh, maybe they're still on the air. I believe that but they left Discovery, our learning channel, uh, two years ago. Right, right. And then what other uh, shows like that were you involved in? I've done some 60-something documentaries. Um, yeah. Some of them we did internally. But we did a number, created the American Hot Rod series with Boyd Coddington. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, did some shows, American Detective. We did multiple CIA clandestine tradecraft shows. Um, but television has has morphed and changed. Mm. And the traditional documentaries that were so uh, evolutionary at the time, now you have 500 channels and everyone has an internal team doing a documentary. So it's different. Television changes. And I know this is uh, for the people who do it full time. It's why they, they probably have a lot of gray hair or are losing hair. We <laughs> have to change with it. Yeah. It seems I, I'm guessing far more competitive because everyone's fighting for content these days with all the streaming channels and cable channels and whatever else is out there. Right. It's harder to get noticed uh, in the same way the world of books have changed that it used to be your presence was in a bookshop. And these days is, you know, very well, Mm -hmm. Amazon is the gorilla. Yeah. You either work with Amazon or your book isn't successful. So I think how we communicate has changed in a commercial sense has changed, be it either media or, or books. The world's changing. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you are an interesting guy. That's for sure. And uh, I'm always fascinated anytime I speak with you. Um, and this could go on and on, but uh I think we have to move into your hypothetical survival scenario. More with Keith Melton after the break. Are you okay. ready, Keith? Are you I going am. to? I think survive? I am. <laughs> All right, here we go. So the way this works, you know, I'm going to be laying out uh, a story. It's a path. It's a journey, if you will. Okay. Um, with every question, there's only two answers. They both could be right. They both could be wrong. Your job is just to pick the right one. So okay. that uh, you survive the next question. Okay. okay. So um, it's unorthodox. You know, we uh, will throw all kinds of stuff at you and uh, you could give me the right answer, but the right answer is what's on my sheet right here. So let's go ahead and get this started. All right. So for this scenario, you'll be attending a banquet in DC. Okay. Uh, and for this particular banquet, you and the spy museum have agreed to uh, put the Trotsky ice pick on display. Okay. Okay. The banquet will be taking place at a hotel in D.C., and you are given a room there. But the morning of the event, you receive a tip that someone may be trying to steal the ice pick. Now, 
What is the value of the Trotsky ice pick? Well, it's insured for millions of dollars. Uh, yeah. It is, it's hard to assign a set value, but that's what we have appraisers that do that for, for the museum. And for people that don't know, this was a an assassination weapon that you recovered, and it still has the blood on it, correct? It's the it's the Alpenstuck, the ice climbing axe that Ramon Mercader used to kill Leon Trotsky on August the 20th of 1940. Wow. This thing's been around the block. Um, okay, so let's see here. The morning of the event, you receive a tip that someone's trying to steal the ice pick uh, that night. And the tipster says uh, it's going to be an inside job. All right. So you probably need to watch Chris Costa, who we've had on the show. <laughs> All right. Uh, and the tipster says whoever is after the pick also has intelligence that is pertinent to national security. Okay. It's important information. Okay. Uh, you must protect the pick. You must determine who the pick thief is and find out what intelligence they have. We will jump right into the first question. All right. So, um, do you a call the hotel and let them tell them your room needs to be closest to the stairwell or B call the hotel and request a hotel map that shows the layout of the rooms. B, we'll get the map. That's right. B. Um, we all know getting, you know, if you have the opportunity to pick a room uh, near the stairwell, especially for females, not a good idea. It's easy to get grabbed by your ponytail, drug into the stairwell. Stairwells in most commercial buildings have their own HVAC and pressurized for fire reasons. So nobody can hear you scream. Nobody knows what's going on inside the stairwell. Um, and that also applies to men. You know, you could have uh, any criminal uh, organization drag you into that stairwell and then uh, you disappear. So it's good to stay away from them. But, you know, uh, with your answer being the correct one, um, requesting a map or looking them up online and getting a lay of the land before you even show up is always a good idea. All right. So now you've made your room request to the hotel. Uh, it is still daytime. So do you a go to the hotel room early or B pick up a burner phone on your way to the hotel? I'd go to the hotel earlier and actually change rooms. Hmm. Okay. That's, uh, that's not wrong, but it's wrong on my sheet. <laughs> Pick, so, you know, going along with the story and pushing you, we're kind of pushing you down the path. Um, B, pick up a burner phone on your way to the hotel. While it is true that if you, uh, you know, you show up early and on time, it's, uh, you know, it gives you time to prepare, gives you time to switch rooms. There's a lot of things you could do when you show up early. But an extra phone that can be hidden in a room and used as a listening device uh, would certainly help you um, knowing what's going on in your room, why you're gone or why you're not there. As you know, these smartphones can be leveraged in so many ways. In fact, there's apps out there that will allow you to turn your phone into a listening device where you can call in on it, turn it on and uh, listen to the microphone. And you and I both know that also, you know, foreign services are very good at uh, um, putting uh, malware on a phone remotely 
and then using it against you, whether it's to listen, to capture data, or to track you. So um, using a burner phone and not your other phone is a, you can throw it in your room and then leverage it to keep track of what's going on. You know, once again, we're trying to stay ahead of the tip that you got that, you know, this um, pick is going to be stolen. All right, so there you go. You decide to set up a, uh, an audio surveillance device in your room. Uh, many people don't know that a speaker and a microphone, uh, for the most part, are one and the same. Um, it's a diaphragm with a positive negative lead. The diaphragm uh, vibrates. Uh, the vibrations can either be picked up and then uh, that information can be passed down a wire, which is called a microphone. Uh, you reverse the leads and that diaphragm now can um, push information out. And the diaphragm vibrates and that's what gives you music. Um, so you, like you said, you're an engineer. You knew that, okay, I can take this, uh, this speaker and I can switch some wires around and all of a sudden... The uh, a microphone becomes a listening device. A listening device can then become a uh, microphone. All right. So any speaker, uh, you can use old school earbuds. The new ones have a microfilament in it that if you take a soldering iron to it, it burns the crap out of it. So uh, bigger headsets and headphones, if you dig around in there, you can switch the wires around and uh, turn your headset into a listening device. Um, pretty cool little trick that you uh that you did keith so now your hotel room stereo system is now one big listening device all right so after setting up the phone on silent and auto answer and you hide uh your audio system device that you've created back inside of the stereo itself so you've taken your phone you've connected it into the jack of the stereo system the stereo system now is one big listening device hooked up to your burner phone. Okay, so hopefully making sense for everybody listening. Um, and upon exiting your room, do you A, close the door to your room and put on the do not disturb sign, or B, choose not to hang the do not disturb sign on your door? As a matter of form, I would put the do not disturb sign on. Correct. Yes. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a trick when you hang your, uh, you know, I put this in hundred deli skills. You can take the hanger that says, do not disturb. You put it on your doorknob and just before the, the door meets the door frame, go ahead and allow, uh, that hanger to slip inside between the door and the door frame as the door closes. So basically what it looks like to the third parties, is that the, the, the sign was kind of swinging as you close the door and it got hung up between the door and the door frame. The beautiful thing about this is it's a trap. And you and I, we both love traps. I mean, it's just kind of cool the different things you can do to increase your awareness as you approach your own hotel room door. So if you've put that sign on your doorknob and you let it catch in the door, and then the next time you come back, it's hanging freely, immediately it's telling you like, okay, I got to pay attention when I go inside, right? What other what other traps uh, do you think are pretty cool for hotel room doors or in hotel rooms generally? Depending on the floor, uh, one I used to love on hardwood floors was taking some cereal and lightly putting it under a rug, a mat, 
So when he would step on, they'd step on a mat, they'd crunch the cereal. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. So anybody close to your door. Yeah, someone close to your door. It doesn't work as much on, on carpet. Uh, depending on the area, simply blowing dust on anything that you're trying to protect. Just blow it. You can recover some dust from the vent. Put it in your hand, then blow it. So put a fine coat of dust on your briefcase or papers so you can see it in oblique light. But the bad guy can't. And dust is a nightmare for anyone that's doing a search to be able to uh, to be able to detect. Uh, any yeah. precise measurement, uh, opening a, and you may have covered it in, in one of the 100 Deadly Skills, opening a closet door, but leaving it precisely the width of a dime or a quarter open. So anyone that opens it, there's no way they're going to be able to get it precisely. Um, Any little thing uh, like that. The key is, are you under surveillance in the room? And can you do it in somewhat an effortless way? Mm -hmm. Because if you lay too many traps and the bad guys see you, well, then clearly they're going to know you have something to hide, which is going to bring them to put every resource they have against you. So right. trying to do it uh, deftly without drawing more surveillance, I think, is a bigger challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. It's uh, going back a little bit on some of your comments. Yeah, it's, I, I think the best traps are natural to your environment. You're not bringing something in like what you see in the movies, a piece of tape, you know, attached to the door and the door frame. That piece of tape stands out. That piece of tape says you're trying to catch someone, whereas the hair off your head and it happens to fall off the doorknob. Uh, wherever you place it, that's more natural, natural to the environment. Dust is natural to the environment. Um, and discrete alignment, like what you're talking about, using a quarter, a coin, or even your thumb. Your thumb width is great for drawers, for closets, for doors. Um, and the other thing is, is if you're under surveillance in that room, you don't want to be obvious because if you are, that could bring on a lot more a lot more scrutiny than than you'd want and so you've got to do everything as if you're just i'm unpacking my suitcase i'm opening drawers i'm closing them thumb no one's going to see that on camera that you just left your thumb in the drawer before it closed all the way same thing with the closet and then same thing when you're leaving your room and you let that thing swing slightly close the door gets trapped and that becomes your first alarm to pay attention when you go in your room okay back to the scenario um, so we know that closing the sign in the room is a, is a way to determine if anything's been tampered with. Um, now it's almost evening and the guests will be arriving soon. Do you, A, go down to the banquet hall and greet the guests, or B, go out to the SUV that uh, brought you there and, and observe attendees as they enter the building? I'd like to see, watch the attendees, see who's sure. ready yeah, set up surveillance. I mean, if it's an inside job, you don't know who you can trust, right? And uh, it's a good idea to see, you know, uh, people's projection and demeanor. Um, you and I both know if they're a pro at this, then you're probably not going to see much. But at least you get a lay of the land and uh, you might be able to do a process of elimination at a, at a minimum, right? Um, as you try to surveil the situation, uh, you can... You can get into the back part of the SUV and watch through, you know, tinted windows, uh, looking for anyone who looks suspicious. Um, you know, and we all know that tent 
you know, you really, anytime you have a hide site, it can be in a vehicle, it can be in a, in another hotel room, looking across at another building. Um, really what you're doing is you are deceiving observers by controlling light. And the key is not to silhouette yourself, whether you're in a vehicle or you're in a room. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do this um, so that your car or your room or wherever you ha have set up to do surveillance doesn't stand out. And that's the goal. You don't want to stand out, um, especially during the day. Now, as it gets dark and, you, you know, it uh, it works, it works for you rather than against you, uh, opposed to like daytime or daylight. Um, now that it's nighttime, um, all the attendees are inside. Uh, do you a skip the event and uh, get the pick out of there safely or B go inside and schmooze, build rapport with the banquet attendees, uh, and continue with the pick on display? The latter, because if I have a intelligence collection objective, I probably won't achieve it if I take the pick and get out. That's right. And plus, you know, it's like, that's what the whole event's for. <laughs> so you don't want to ruin an event based on a tip. Um, you just got to increase your awareness and make sure you stay ahead of, uh, stay ahead of your adversary. Um, you can't bail on the mission now, right? So you have to, uh, you have to find the pick thief and, uh, get their Intel. Um, could be a matter of national security as they say. Uh, it has been about an hour of small talk around the party, which I know you love and you decide to go check on your room. Um, when you get to the room, you see the do not disturb sign is no longer stuck in the door frame. Okay. So tampering has been detected. Your situational awareness is heightened. So do you a go inside the room and see if anything is missing or B slowly get away from the room. Use your cell phone to call your burner phone, which then allows you to listen to what's going on inside. B. B is correct. You I want to know what's in that room before I go in. That's right. You call and listen to the audio device. Um, you know, remember it's set to auto answer. That is a feature that is hard to come by these days. <laughs> and you hear two voices in the room. All right. Uh, they're looking for the pick inside your room, but realize it's already on display downstairs. Okay. These guys aren't very smart. They, they haven't been really doing good surveillance on you. Um, they disclose uh, to one another that a tall man in a red tie will be the one to take the pick from the display downstairs. Okay. So now you really know what's going on. Tall guy in a red tie. Um, with this new information, do you A, alert security to the suspect's description, or B, Go back to the party, act normal, but keep your eye on the tall guy in the red tie. Second choice. Yes. You know, typically alerting authorities probably be a good idea, but let's face it, this is all based on tip and somewhat hearsay and, you know, you might look crazy um, going into this whole, uh, you know, story about the pick's going to get stolen and I know who it is and I've got listening devices in my hotel room and I trap my door and anyway, people are going to start looking at you sideways. So you decide to just kind of keep this to yourself and uh, keep the mission going. Um, and now it's getting late. Banquet attendees are starting to leave. The place is emptying out quickly. 
So do you, A, take the pick and get the hell out of there, or B, hide the pick in your view so that you can catch this tall, red, tied ice pick thief? I, I would say the second, because merely escaping with a pick doesn't help me accomplish my intelligence collection. Objective. Right. Yeah. You got to remember the goal. It's, uh, it's yes, you want to prevent your pick from being stolen, but there's also pertinent intelligence to be gathered from this person that might be, uh, you know, national security level stuff. So, um, and we are in D.C., right? It's the capital of the world for spies. Um, all right, so everyone else is gone. Uh, it's been over an hour waiting for someone to emerge and steal this ice pick. Um, you're hiding about 20 feet away from the ice pick. You've got eyes on. You're in the shadows. Nobody knows you're there. And, when, and then uh, when, the re- when the tall red tie man emerges and approaches the ice pick, he picks it up and is about to leave with it, Okay. Do you A, call the cops, or B, confront him and demand him to stop? I'd confront him. Yeah. Because I don't have any, any confidence of what the, the police would do. Who would That's they right. believe? Yeah. And, and what do you have in your right hand most of the time? I have a cane. You have a cane. Yes, we're going to get into that. So normally calling the cops would be the right answer. Right, but you are a trained, skilled guy, um, and you have to act quickly. You don't want this thing leaving because by the time the cops show up, that thing's going to be gone. All right, so you confront him. Now it's just you and the red tie man, and he has the pick in his jacket. Last question: Do you a de-escalate the situation and reason with him, or b? Do the big figure eight move with your cane and crack him over the head and crush his skull in and take your pick back. <laughs> uh, if he's got a crushed skull, he probably can't give me the intel I wanted. So I think I would talk softly but carry a big cane. And, there we uh, go. Combination breathe. of both answers. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you got to get that back. So you got to show a certain level level of aggression, intimidation, whatever, whatever works. And then, uh, and then once you have that pick, then you can uh, see what else maybe is on it. Maybe tell them to you know, you, you got the cane. You show that you know how to use it, and uh, you make them lay down in the ter- what we call the terrorist T. Right, his legs crossed. He's laying on his chest, legs crossed, and his hands straight out like a big T. And then you can search him and see what he's got going on before the uh, before law enforcement arrives. But uh, great job. You, Keith, Melton, have survived this <laughs> podcast. You, uh, I think you only missed one at the beginning, um, but I think once you figured out the game, you uh, obviously allowed me to push you down the path <laughs> just fine. Interesting um, choice. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I appreciate you coming on the show. And, uh, you know, let's talk. Let's take a second and um, – Let's talk about these canes because that's your new passion lately. And uh, you've been hitting it out of the park, um, getting these combat canes out there into people's hands. Uh, you know, I've obviously got some. I put uh, I put several of your skills in combat edition um, because I got to say at first I was like, wait a minute. 
a cane, really. Um, and then when I saw you guys start, you know, throwing those things around, I was like, holy shit. Uh, you know, I know that you can get them up to a hundred plus miles, miles an hour in speed, uh, with very little training. I know that, uh, you know, the techniques are, you know, incredibly simple, uh, and effective. Um, I felt like, you know, you, you showed me a couple of things. I was like, wow, yeah, I'm gonna start carrying this. I feel like the biggest issue with carrying a cane, uh, for, you know, me, a 47 year old guy that's somewhat healthy is just the ego aspect of carrying a cane. That's the hardest part, right? I'm going to carry this cane. And it's like, what are people going to think? They think I'm what? Like I got issues. What (laughs) I got, I'm old, I'm decrepit. I'm what? And, uh, I think those are, uh, but I'll, you know, I'll stop there. Tell me about your cane business. Well, we are the, uh, I guess, probably one of the few remaining custom cane shops in the country. We make everything here in South Florida ourselves. We're just American hardwoods. I'm a, you know, a veteran, as you are, and we're very proud of producing canes that are wonderful for mobility, agility, but also for personal protection. And the we have a right to carry a cane. Uh, I, after three or four back operations, uh, I have intermittent pain in my back. I need it. I'm yeah. protected by the Americans with Disability Act. In fact, under the 2003 HIPAA Privacy Act, it's illegal for anyone to even ask me why I carry a cane, because that's a violation of my medical privacy. And I can, of course, carry my cane legally with me on board a, a plane. I can have it in my check baggage, or I can take it in my own board luggage. So yeah. it is a, it's comfortable to walk with, but Heaven forbid, if you need it, it is a very effective, impromptu personal protection tool that you can use to survive until the authorities can arrive or you can get help. And uh, it's always with you. We've often talked, the best tool in the world is the one you have with you when you need it. It's not the one that's back in the safe or the one you couldn't bring on the plane. So it even in Florida, where we're concealed carry state and very similar to Texas, a cane is a cane gives you an option. It's a first choice. It gives you a way to not have to draw. And as we both know from the, the, the 20 foot rule, if you detect a bad guy closer than 20 feet away, you're likely not going to be able to clear your weapon in time. Mm-hmm. Where my cane is always in my hand. I can use it to defend myself and save my life. And in these trying times, canes, canes serve multiple purposes. As we kind of jokingly say, if you live long enough, you use a cane. So sometimes <laughs> maybe the goal is to live so long that you do use one. And if yeah, you're going yeah. to use one, why not carry one that's well-crafted and well-suited for both mobility primarily, but also for personal protection. No, that's, uh, I mean, I'm with you, man. A weapon that's already drawn that you can carry in public and nobody thinks twice about is a great weapon to me. I mean, and uh, you've already got the upper hand on the bad guy and the bad guy for the most part, isn't going to know that you've already got the upper hand on him. Um, And yeah, I agree. It's like, you know, the, the riddle in order to enter uh, the, the kingdom of Kings in Egypt, um, you had the Sphinx, right, standing guard, and there was a riddle in order to enter. 
uh, and it was supposedly the question was, what starts with four legs, then two, then three? All right. And I, you just kind of described it. It's, it's man, it's humans. We start on all fours, then we go to two, and then we go to three, which is the cane. And then, uh, obviously if you got the answer right, you got to enter the, the land of pharaohs and whatever else was in there. But, um, anyway, it's, uh, the canes are certainly, um, a devastating weapon that, uh, hides in plain sight. And I always tell people, it's like carrying a baseball bat, except it's not a felony. <laughs> well, we, uh, we, 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 think of it more of a, as a personal protection tool and, yes. and not a, not a weapon because, for the majority of our customers and clients, uh, and myself, I, I just want to live peacefully and do my do my business, go to dinner with my wife, and I just I don't want to I want to protect myself, even though I'm older. Yeah, almost everyone comes up with that same feeling as you reach a certain age. Well, a, a cane is a way that you can have comfort when you walk, but you also know that. Need be, you could effectively defend yourself, your wife, your family, and you know that that's our primary purpose as a man. That's what we're supposed to do. That's right. That's right. And secretly, you uh, are hoping for a bad guy to come around the corner so you can use your cane. Well, the, <laughs> the best cane fight you'll ever get in is the one you never had. Well, so yeah, that's you always true. walk away a winner. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, where can people find these canes? Besides violentnomad.com, you've got a bigger selection on your website, which is where? Which is uh, www.canemasters.com. Canemasters.com. And, and is that pretty much the handle for social media, YouTube, and all that as well? It is for, for, for YouTube, uh, social media. We, uh, our world is working with folks and answering questions and helping them uh, make a good decision. And, uh, yeah. We've create from the, the war and peace cane that uh, we created with you, which is what I'm taking on a trip with me tomorrow. It's uh, it's gorgeous. I love it. And uh, we create canes that are heritage pieces. Yeah. Our clients use them for the rest of their lives and then pass them on to a child or a grandchild. Yeah. They're not, they're not temporary disposable pieces. These are, we consider them almost works of art. They are. They are. The finish on them, the, uh, the different, uh, what do you call all the uh, woodwork? Well, we have uh, we have grips. Uh, we have a section of rumble strips or shark's teeth, which is not really shark's teeth. It's just a way that if you're defending yourself and if you can narrow the, the surface area that came in contact, if you had to defend yourself against a bad guy, mm-hmm. if you reduce the surface area, you proportionally increase the power of the strike. And same concept, if a woman steps on your toe with a high heel, on the back of that heel, it feels much different than stepping it on with a tennis shoe. So the, the, the smaller the area of the contact with the same power of the strike, the more impact. Yeah. And so shark's teeth are a, kind of a ridge we machine into a cane, which does that. It does. But it's uh, There's an elegance and a balance to a cane that uh, once people begin training with it, they understand how comfortable it is, but how effective it can be with just a little training. And it's perhaps one of the easiest tools for people to adopt later in life. Because most of, many of my customers have some martial arts training throughout their lives. And 
suddenly you're in your late 50s and have that first knee operation or back operation. And you think that's just the first, but more than likely you'll be more that follow. So being comfortable with a cane and uh, it, it works for multiple reasons that you've outlined. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great tool and uh, I certainly respect it now. Um, well, Keith, thank you for uh, sharing your time and all of your knowledge, wisdom, and stories. It's been great hanging out with you. Um, is there any other places that uh, people can find you online uh, to find out more about you? Maybe uh, some of your books. Uh, what's the best way? Well, the, the books are on Amazon, and uh, I have a Facebook page that that's there. My my lovely bride helps me manage, Karen. But uh, go to canemasters.com. I'm easy okay. to reach, and uh, in our world is to help people make good decisions and stay safe. And I know you share some of those same objectives and everything that you do. Sure do. Sure do. Um, well, there you go. You guys can uh, look up Keith Melton at Amazon. He'll pop up as an author. There's a lot of books on there, a lot of cool ones. Um, and then, of course, Cane Masters, if you want to get a uh, combat cane or learn more about it. It is an art uh, it has a, uh, it has a system in place. You can learn how to really use it effectively. Uh, and I'm sure Keith can answer all those questions at his websites or on social media. And, uh, like I always say, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. Thanks for listening. And we do appreciate five stars and any comments you can put on the platform in which you're listening to this. Thanks again. Take care. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. <laughs>